Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. For the past year or so, I've been taking some time in the morning to read in a, in a fasc, fascinating book titled The Bard and the Bible. It's organized with daily entries where each one includes a quote from Shakespeare and a, a related verse or passage from the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, then there's a devotional reading based on uh, the quotes, which, which concludes with a short question about how you can use the messages from the Bible and Shakespeare in your daily life. Uh, and then there's an interesting fact or two about Shakespeare. It's a remarkable book and I highly recommend it. Uh, to joining me today to talk about it is its author, uh, Bob Hostetler. Bob's written 36 books, including two best-selling devotionals uh, and has won two gold medallion awards, an Amy Foundation award, and is the founding pastor of Cobblestone Community Church in Oxford, Ohio. Bob, delighted to have you here. Bill, it's a pleasure. It's a joy to be talking to you and to a fellow Shakespeare nut. It's a joy. Well, I feel like I know you very well because I've been you, you've been you've been teaching me every morning now for the last year and a half or so. Uh, what what uh, what led you to write this book? Well, it's uh, you know it, uh, the Bible. As uh, someone who's been raised in the church and especially raised on the King James version of the Bible, as I was, I know I don't look old enough to have been raised on the King James version, but uh, uh, well, at least it wasn't the Geneva version. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. But uh, you know, I've always had a, a familiarity and a comfort and a passion for the Bible, but. Uh, uh, when I began to study Shakespeare, not so much in high school, but in, in college, I remember uh, one day sitting in a, a classroom where I was attending as a, a I don't know, late 20s, 28, 29 year old. And, you know, of course, most of the others in the class were 19 or 20. And uh, we were just doing uh, Romeo and Juliet, as I recall, and, and everyone else in the class, these were smart smart kids, you know, but everyone else in the class was really struggling with Shakespeare's language. And Romeo and Juliet is probably the most accessible or one of the most accessible of Shakespeare's plays. And I looked around the room and just thought, what, what's wrong? Why are they struggling so much? And, and then as time went on, it dawned on me, oh, yeah, see, I was raised on the King James English because of my uh, upbringing in the church and my exposure to the King James Version of the Bible. And so I had that language, those cadences, that, that way of speaking and, and reading and hearing already in me. And so it was no stretch for me then to, to read and understand Shakespeare. There's still some parts that were puzzling to me. What was the spark that said, I'm gonna find a passage in Shakespeare and a passage in the Bible. How do you put all that together? Because it's it's a it's a prodigious thing. Yeah, it is. Well, it actually started um, that part of it sometime after that class and that realization. I just uh, uh, you know in my daily Bible reading and and exposure to Shakespeare, I saw these correspondences. You know, such as when when uh, 
Shakespeare has Hamlet say, what a piece of work is a man, right? How noble in faculty, et cetera, et cetera. That soliloquy just paired up neatly for me with Psalm 8, uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and so on. And so I saw these connections and sometimes contrasts between the Bible and Shakespeare, especially the King James Version. So I just, for my own enjoyment, uh, I, I put together a flip calendar. It's a homemade flip calendar. This was 25 or so years ago, I suppose. And I just paired a quote from Shakespeare with a verse from the Bible and thought, look, I found 365 of those. Isn't that cool? And then I tried to uh, sell that idea uh, several times as a calendar or a gift book, and it, it never happened. And then five or so years ago, I, uh, it, I, as I flipped that calendar, today's, by the way, is from Othello, Act One, Let Me Go With Him. And of course, uh, the what I paired with that is Ruth uh, saying to her mother-in-law, Naomi, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people, and thy God my God. So I tried to sell this as a flip calendar or a gift book for many years, but then one day it just dawned on me, why have I never done this as a devotional? So I pitched the idea to my agent, Steve Lobby, and that was the first time that I had multiple publishers uh, bidding on a project which became The Bard in the Bible, a Shakespeare devotional. Well, it's a terrific book, and you picked purple, which is the royal color um, for the uh, crown of England, I believe, which was a great choice. And also the Pope, I think, is, a fam is familiar with, with purple. So you've, the, the graphics here are fantastic. You can find this. This is on Amazon. It is. Do you have a Kindle version? Yeah, the Kindle version, uh, the ebook version is available on Amazon and christianbook.com and so on. Well, I bet you can back into a calendar from the, once people get using the Kindle, they're going to say, gee, why don't I, anyway, I, it, it, you're off to a great, great start. The, you know, the, there are just so many connections. You do the comparison quotes, you take one from Henry VI and, you know, smooth runs the water where the brook is deep. And then you jump to Proverbs where it says, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Did Shakespeare, uh, well, let's go back into Shakespeare's world. He was born in 1564. King James was, built, was born in 1566, I believe. And Shakespeare grew up with the Geneva Bible, which is the predecessor to King James. So he didn't, I mean, he... He was contemporaneous with the creation of the King James, and I want to talk about whether he was involved in, in writing that. But the world of Shakespeare, if you didn't go to church, uh, you were arrested. And the Bible was omnipresent in day-to-day -day life. It was read out loud every day uh, in church. Uh, what did they have? A Bible they read from at the pulpit called the Chained Bible. And I guess they had it chained because they didn't want people uh, borrowing it. <laughs> right. So uh, talk about Shakespeare's world. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a fascinating study. The, in the Elizabethan world in which Shakespeare grew up and started writing, uh, 
the the Bible was just a part of daily life. It was the the province of the clergy. It was chained to the pulpit, and and the clergy uh, considered themselves the experts. But because of several developments in that era, uh, the Bible became more and more uh, because of Wycliffe and because of the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, those were popular uh, translations of the scriptures that, that entered the lexicon of English speaking people. And uh, for Shakespeare, as a schoolboy growing up and as a, a man who started to write plays and so on, it was just ingrained within him. It, it, it oozed out his pores these because it was not only read in church, but it was a part of their intellectual property. It was just the way they thought, the way they spoke. And, and so for Shakespeare, in his world, those cadences, those verses, those phrases from the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, um, those were just part of what it meant to be a literate person in 16th century England. Well, the Geneva Bible was the first mass published Bible and it was annotated. So it was very popular, but, but most people weren't, I mean, they read aloud at home from the Bible, but it was an oral tradition, not a, not a, not a, not a tradition of reading in it. It was a, it was a tradition of listening to it. And I think that tradition has been largely lost today, although it seems to be coming back with podcasts and Shakespeare go to the globe theater, 3000 people, half of them were in the cheap seats, which are, by the way, that's it, didn't he coin that phrase? That's right. Yeah, that's where all that's where all the groundlings stood around the around the stage and just listened to it. Most people couldn't see what was going on, so it was the experience of hearing Shakespeare when they went to the Globe that was uh, that was uh, what 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 they and they brought the experience of hearing the Bible um, to the to the Globe. Right. In fact, in Shakespeare's day, in common parlance, people didn't speak of going to see a play they said, I'm going to hear a play. Yes. Because the language was paramount. And there were virtually no props, no scenery on the stage. So it was a spoken word art form. Well, I'm going to veer into something I wanted to talk about later, but let's, let's do it now. The Globe Theater was organized almost like a, it was like a tall donut. And they had uh, a circular stage of most of the people around and there were no, no props to speak of. And up above, they had a decorative uh, uh, roof above the stage, and then they had a trapdoor on the uh, on the stage itself that would, actors could drop down into or come up from when maybe the ghost of Hamlet came up through the floor. I'm not sure which play they used it in, but they called the uh, the the uh, the uh, the piece above heaven, and the trapdoor was hell. Right. <laughs> Right. It was all just part of their language. It was, and that's, and, and as, as far as staging went, that was what, you know, the, the, the sun uh, provided the lighting during the day and they use candles at night, uh, which is one of the reasons the globe burnt down when it did in the early 1600s. But yeah, and, and that the O that formed the globe actually entered into one of Shakespeare's uh, plays. Well, it was that was that the Henry V where they owe for a cask of uh, no? Was that the chorus? 
he, he speaks about, and I, I can't recall which, which play it was, but he talks about the, the uh, it slips my mind, but there is a phrasing where he refers to the, the O, the, is it the golden O, the, the globe? Yeah, think, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I think, uh, I think Hamlet also had that in there. As you can see, you've, you've seduced me into, into reading a lot of Shakespeare, a lot more than... Uh, There's so much there. But how do you how do you translate? Oh, I'm, I'm noticing here. Let's. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Bob Hofsettler, who has written a tremendous book, The Bard and the Bible. And we're talking about the Globe Theater and and Shakespeare's world and the experience of hearing the play, uh, not 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 seeing the play as we would think about it today. So I think I cut you off in the middle of something very interesting. He he quotes from the Bible. Um, over a thousand times, or alludes to it. Right, more than any other Elizabethan, far more than any other Elizabethan writer, poet, or playwright. Was he writing, uh, how many other, what other, have any other playwrights uh, uh, come down to us from that day, 1600, over 400 years well, ago? Well, we have some of Marlowe's plays yeah. and Ben Jonson's plays and so on, yeah. Well, let me clear up something that people have thrown up in the last 100 years was, uh, did Shakespeare write these plays? Oh, yeah. Well, the authorship question was a, a hot scholarly debate 20 or 30 years ago, but it's been largely and partly because of some new manuscript discoveries, some uh, uh, things that have been learned over the last 20 or 30 years. It's less of a hot debate now than it was back in the day. Um, these days, the, the bulk of scholarly opinion, at least as I understand it, and I'm no scholar, I'm just a fan, but the bulk of scholarly opinion is, uh, is that that's a question now that's been solved. Shakespeare did write the plays, despite the various uh, suggestions that Bacon or, or uh, the Earl wrote, uh, you know, some or all of his plays, those have been largely abandoned. These days, most scholars agree Shakespeare was the author, though he did, especially late in his life, co-author uh, some of his plays with John Fletcher and others. Well, he was highly successful. He, he was not a starving artist writing in obscurity. He was very financially successful. He owned a piece of the theater company and I think was a big estate landowner. Uh, at the time, and and I, I worked in the theater in the, in in my twenties. I still sort of miss it, but uh, I'm, I guess I'm happier. I went on to finance. Uh, starving actors is not not that great. But he 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 worked in the theater as a working writer. And if you worked in the theater, you know, if you get a playwright, everybody knows who's writing the play, and you've got to fix a scene. You've got to get somebody to rewrite this or that. And the theater community in Shakespeare's time was pretty small. There were what, what like uh, a half a dozen theater companies uh, or more. So right. everybody knew everybody and everybody knew who he was. So um, we had this genius amidst them. And do uh, you remember the play Amadeus? Uh-huh, sure do. And I'm interested in your idea about this because I do want to get into the, the theological piece of our conversation was it there's a great scene in, in Amadeus where Mozart's writing his music. Actually, it's after he's written the music. Salieri comes in and looks at Mozart's uh, uh, music that he's written. And he says, 
there's no erasure. There's there's no typo. There's no changes here. We this is just written out. And and Salieri then said he thought that this may have been written through the hand of God. And the story about Shakespeare at this time when he's hey Will we need we need a new act too that isn't working. He would sit down and he would just he would just jot out this without much correction and just hand him the uh, uh, the language. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. And you know, part of that I think we can we can ascribe to um, to the conditions in which people wrote in those days. You know, paper and paper especially, but paper and ink were expensive commodities, and so you didn't waste any of them. And so, uh, you know, it, he when when not only him but Marlowe and others were writing. By the time the ink hit the page, the thought was there. Mm -hmm. It was developed, though there are, for example, uh, there have been recent manuscript discoveries in which uh, it's believed that uh, Shakespeare contributed to a uh, an earlier play that was uh, was has that he actually penned a page in I think it was Richard the Second, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. That uh, that is a fairly new discovery among Shakespearean scholars, and and it shows his hand, and it shows the confidence and the uh, and the uh, boldness of his hand and his thought. Hmm. Are you uh, are you 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 founded the cobblestone cobblestone community church? Are you still actively uh, preaching? Uh, well, I do preach every once in a while, but as a guest preacher. So my wife and I moved out of Ohio a few years ago. Uh, I led that church for uh, 11 years, and it's still a, a thriving church in Oxford, Ohio. But I have not been active as a pastor since uh, the beginning of 2011. Hmm. Do, you, uh, do you bring uh, Shakespeare into your, uh, into your sermons? Oh, uh, whenever I can, I try not to be insufferable about it, you know, but, but I mean, it applies to so much as the devotional shows as the book, you know, anything that you can find 365 um, correspondences to things in the Bible to verses or passages in the Bible. It's just, it's just woven throughout who I am, and what I say. When you created the idea for the devotional, the was the spark to to use the bible as as the source for each devotional or the shakespeare for each source how do those two when you get into language they're similar but obviously the the bible's got a different source and shakespeare was written by shakespeare what uh, what what's the how do you think about that well, actually, I didn't, it, it wasn't so much that one was uh, the beginning and the other came second, it's that they, it all came together, you know, because though, as I said earlier, there are not only correspondences between Shakespeare's phrasing and the King James Version and the points that they make, the things that they prescribe and urge upon people, but there's also contrasts interestingly. And there's even, you know, uh, the Bible even played a part in Shakespeare's sense of humor, because uh, uh, he, several times he has one of his, uh, in, in separate plays, his most used passage of the Bible is from, I believe, 1 Corinthians. It's where, uh, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man what God plans for his people, basically, is the thought. But he has, uh, in two separate plays, he, he has uh, not only 
repeats that phrase three times, I think in two plays, but has one of his clowns, I forget which one, mangle it. So, so he's saying, I, it may have been Falstaff, but I could be wrong about that, uh, that ear hath not seen nor I heard. Uh, and then he goes on to mangle it further. So, uh, so that, you know, Shakespeare even used uh, verses from the Bible to uh, elucidate a character or to have fun with the audience because the audience would have recognized right away, they oh, yeah. were also, even if they were illiterate, they were biblically literate, the audience would have recognized the mistake. When uh, Shakespeare wrote 38 plays, and you, I noticed I didn't count all of them, but I think you used about six quotes from one of the early plays, King John, I believe, or maybe three, but you used 41 from Hamlet. Right. Well, there, Hamlet. if you're in the wisdom literature business, what are the, what are the, what are Shakespeare's greatest hits in your mind? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Hamlet is just, and even for modern American audiences who are not, generally not as biblically literate, not as Shakespeare literate as past generations have been. Even for modern audience, Hamlet is just virtually every other line in Hamlet is, is a quote that we know, not just to be or not to be, but so many uh, that, that it just reads, it, you can read Hamlet and even if it's your first time reading, you recognize two thirds or three quarters of the play because it's so familiar. Well, it is what what uh, so my favorites would be Hamlet. I love Macbeth. I love Lear. I love I love the, the plays about the kings. Maybe it's maybe it's that time I spent being a CEO, uh -huh. because the one of the things that when Shakespeare's writing about the kings is he doesn't think they had a very good time. <laughs> you know, that's right. The phrase yeah. uneasy as the uneasy as the head that wears the crown was 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 a real theme for uh, uh, for Shakespeare. Right. And, you know, he, uh, well, you, you must understand that, especially later in his life, he was a, a, a servant of the court. He was a uh, King James's playwright, you know, after 1603 and, uh, and favored as well by Queen Elizabeth. Um, but so he had to play things down the middle, at least, you know, he had to please the groundlings uh, that came to his plays, but he also had to be careful to please the, the ruler of that time. And interestingly, one thing that's easy to miss is that in his plays, uh, and this reflects the, the temperature of the time, royalty, uh, when a royal person, a king or queen speaks, their lines are in verse. When the common people, such as Falstaff speak, ordinarily, their lines are in prose, blank verse, actually. So uh, there was a, also an exalted language given to the royals that wasn't given to the commoners. Well, they got to speak in $5 word coming, iambic pentameter. Right. Exactly. Which is really, which is a big word for just it's 10 beats, ta-dum, 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 ta-dum. It's not, and it's also, some people think it's the sound that your heart makes. And the other th thing I've heard, and you may be interested in whether you've heard this too, is that when he did it in iambic pentameter, it was easier for his actors to memorize. Right. It, it, it's an aid to the memory. 
absolutely. As were, like, for example, in, in uh, typical theatrical uh, plays, you know, the end of a scene or the end of an act uh, was a couplet so that mm -hmm. the the actors waiting in the wings would know, even if they hadn't memorized the lines of the people out there on the stage, they would know, okay, we're about to go on. Well, it's just stunning how many thousands of lines are in a Shakespeare play and having been an actor briefly, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company for, by, for, by comparison today, when they put in a play, they take eight to 12 weeks uh, to mount the play, which means they've got that time to memorize their lines. Shakespeare was, they were, they were mounting plays every once a week, sometimes twice a week. And you had to remember uh, thousands and thousands of lines. Right. And it's a, it's even more amazing. It, it was a verbal an oral culture. Uh, and so the, the actors uh, had a, 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 you know, propensity and ability to memorize things probably more than most moderns do, but still it's amazing to see how quickly these plays were produced. So the author writing a play in, in a week, in a few days is just mind boggling to us. But then the actors having to put it on uh, very quickly uh, after they got the, the first copy, you know, the, the foul pages as, as the drafts were called and then the fair pages came later. Well, they didn't get to, well, I just noticed, uh, you're watching the Bill Walton show. I'm talking with Bob Hostetler and we're talking about the, the difficulty that Shakespearean actors had uh, working for Will and that he handed them thousands of lines to, and the other thing he didn't do was he didn't give them the whole play. Right. Uh, he, he said, here are your lines. And as I understand it, if you've got just one page of your lines, that meant you did not have a very big part. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it also, there are very few cues in Shakespeare. So the actors uh, of the, that day didn't have the kind of cues that screenplays and uh, so on have today. Uh, in fact, that's why one of the most famous lines in Shakespeare is that rare cue, exit chased by a bear. Oh, that's a great one. He also has one, enter two murderers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but you're right. There's almost none of the none of the trappings that go with a modern play that explain kind of what everybody um, is supposed to do. Uh, do you uh, do you have any more plans to write any more on on Shakespeare? Where do, where 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 can we go from this from this endeavor? Well, uh, you know, I do get. Um... Uh, I, I don't have any immediate plans to write more on Shakespeare, but it's always churning in me. So, you know, as a working writer and literary agent and speaker, uh, I basically follow the money. You know, who if I, I can find somebody that's willing to pay me, I'll write it. Uh, but no plans at the moment. One of the, one of the terrible things I think about what's going on in education is there's so many teachers or schools taking Shakespeare out of the curriculum because they're, they do it basically on identity politics, white, European, patriarchal, you know, all the, all the things that are supposed to be terrible now, they're taking them out of the curriculum. And the irony in that is that Shakespeare didn't care much about politics, whether he was worried about King James uh, shutting down his company or not, he cared about people, he cared about character. 
and he didn't write politically at all. He didn't much care about ideas. He he cared about humans and how they reacted, and and every all the characters, even a, a villain like Macbeth. Macbeth was an incredibly attractive human being, and so you 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 cared for that them as people. And I, I think I think we we suck that out of. Uh, our, our teaching and learning at great peril. Right, and I agree with you. He was all about the person. He was such a, a, a wise uh, and informed student of human nature and the things that he had to be as a playwright, as any playwright did, had to know what would please not only the crown, but also the groundlings, as I said before. But Shakespeare was also, he was not only a man of his time, but he was a man ahead of his time. And this is another reason why I think it's such a mistake to remove him from curricula, because he uh, had to very carefully, but he changed minds as he wrote. So you take a, a play like The Merchant of Venice, which was similar to other plays of his time by uh, leading playwrights, uh, The Jew of Malta and, and one that's just called The Jew, I believe. But those really uh, demonized the Jewish character in the play. Shakespeare gave to Shylock, a humanity, uh, an identification that other playwrights didn't. And he presented the conflict, the central conflict of the play so compellingly that he turned what had been traditionally an unsympathetic, easily booed character into someone you sympathized for and empathized with. And he had to do it very carefully because he was a man of his time, but he did change minds and change norms as he wrote. Well, and, and just to further emphasize that, he didn't come up with his own stories. The playwrights of that era borrowed and stole. The original story wasn't, wasn't the thing. It was how you handled the material, right? how you did the language, and how you created interesting characters. Exactly. He had a lot of choices with Shylock. Yeah. He could, it was, Shylock had always been written as the, as the unrepentant demon throughout all the other stories, and he turned that around 180 degrees. Exactly. Exactly. And he and and I, I think it was intentional, not only with that, but also with the strong women such as Beatrice that he characterized in his play, in his plays, those kinds of influences that Shakespeare had changed. This. He wrote the first stage musical. I don't know if uh, if people are generally aware, but as masks became more popular yeah. during the late Elizabethan and early uh, Jacobean periods, uh, he made, uh, he incorporated mask elements and song into his plays in a way that others had never done. Well, and he, uh, there were a lot of musical instruments in Shakespeare, which unfortunately, because there's no recording or they didn't write the music down, we don't really know, but there was a lot of music in it. But, but coming back to the cultural identity piece of this, he wrote terrific parts for women. He did. And, you know, look at Romeo and Juliet. I mean, you've gone, a you've, once you get through Romeo and Juliet, you say, why is Juliet marrying this foolish little boy? Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Juliet's yeah. got all the wisdom. She's the, she's the, she's the, she is the most important and interesting character in the play by far. By far. And, yeah. and yet, and yet, and, and so if you're a young woman, you would definitely want to read Romeo and Juliet because of, uh, you know, who she is and, and how he portrayed her. 
and and Lady Macbeth, and it just goes on and on. The strong women, the and the women who are articulate, speak beautiful poetry that he put in their mouths is just uh, that's one of the accomplishments of Shakespeare. One of my favorite characters is Macbeth because you know he is the villain, but there is the Lady Macbeth who arguably was the brains of the bunch. That's right. And there's my favorite scene where she's telling me you got to go kill Duncan, and he walks into the room and there's nobody there, and he says if if it were done, uh, when it is done, to prevest it were done quickly. Right. <laughs> Just he stop talking and do it. Yeah. He doesn't, doesn't want to. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Well, it's as a man was coming back to the devotional. Was was, was Shakespeare particularly a believer? Was he Christian? Was he Catholic? Uh, there are all sorts of stuff, things written about him. He was an atheist. You know, the secular romantics in the 19th century like the fact that they thought Shakespeare was secular and not religious, whereas you look at it really, and it was quite religious. So where, right. where was he as a, as a man? I, my opinion, and it's just an opinion, is that he was a uh, generally irreligious man caught between two, uh, two sides of the Catholic Protestant issue in Elizabethan times. And so, and in fact, it's thought by many that his father uh, was a uh, secret Catholic and, uh, and that Shakespeare had to, because of the queen and her policies, had to be very careful. In fact, he was also fined. One of the recent discoveries is that he was among those fined for not attending church in his London. Father, his father, John, was. Yeah. So was Shakespeare. Actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, very recently. Uh, but um, so he had to walk that thin line. Uh, but it's it's clear to me that he had a Christian worldview informed by the Bible. He he breathed it in and he breathed it out. And it's one of the things that led to the writing of the Bard in the Bible for me is that it just strikes me as a, a unique event in human history that the the works of Shakespeare and the King James version of the Bible, these two towering uh, accomplishments in the English language were created not only in the same era, in the same country, in the same city, by men who knew each other well, basically working just across the river from each other. Uh, it just speaks of how unique that moment in history was and what a debt we owe to those who created both. Well, there's some dates. Uh, Shakespeare's born in 1564, King James 1566. He, he began, he, he commanded the writing of the King James Bible uh, in 1604, which was when Shakespeare was still alive. He didn't die till 1616. And it took almost eight years, nine years to write it. Or it, it, it and, and they had a whole group of men across the Thames writing scholars. Correct. And now, uh, was he involved in that at all? I mean, is there any evidence that he was, uh, that his gift for language infused uh, uh, their work? Well, there is, there is a hint, and that's in Psalm 48, where uh, uh -huh. Yeah. You know, people talk about it often where some people think that he he uh, was involved, at least in that 
translation because he kind of used an, uh, a cryptic way of embedding his name in the translation of Psalm 48. My opinion is that he wasn't directly involved. As I said, he knew these men. They were all servants of the crown. And so they had a special status, Shakespeare and uh, Lancelot Andrews and the others who were involved in the translation of the King James Version. But uh, my, my suspicion is that as a playwright, as, as someone who worked in the theater, Shakespeare would not have been involved in the translation. Yeah, but since, yeah, since he knew these men yeah. and they rubbed shoulders with each other in court, uh, the, he, it's quite possible he had some influence. Uh, well, and he was a man of the theater and the theater was not respectable. Absolutely not, no. Slightly then. Um, you know, he got married at 18. His wife at the time was 26 and she was pregnant. Um, and, you know, the theater get, would get shut down all the time by, by uh, the, the, the religious powers. And uh, now I, I, I think it's unlikely, but, and also he had a vocabulary. He, he had, didn't he have something like 27,000 words in, in his plays and, and, the, and the Bible has only 7,000? Yeah, there's, uh, I don't know the numbers, but there's something like that. But the, the, I, I may exaggerate his vocabulary, yeah. but not by much. It was like three times the numbers of in the words in the Bible. Well, and part of, part of the reason for that would have been the subject matter that, that, you know, he had a much broader choice among history plays, comedies and tragedies and Roman plays and so on, uh, that, that the Bible translators didn't, uh, didn't have that broad subject well, matter. Well, and they were also careful scholars. He just exactly. made up, he just made them up. He made up a bunch of words, a bunch <laughs> of phrases. He made up about yeah. a thousand words. Think of, I'm just looking at the list here. Sea change, sorry yeah. sight, all the corners of the world, all of a sudden. I, there's the rub. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go through all thousand, but it's. And uh, all the insults that are in Shakespeare, they're not in the Bible. <laughs> you won't find, you won't find the uh, cod swallop in the King James version. Well, I want to conclude. We, we're just about out of time here, but I want to get your reaction to Harold Bloom on, on Shakespeare. He said, uh, this is about who he was. Uh, he said, by reading Shakespeare, I can gather that he did not like lawyers, preferred drinking to eating, and evidently lusted after both genders. But I certainly do not have a clue as to whether he favored Protestantism or Catholicism or neither. And he knew, I do not know whether he believed or disbelieved in God or in resurrection. His politics, like his religion, evades me, but I think he was too wary to have any. He was sensibly afraid of mobs and of uprising, yet he was afraid of authority also. Right. I think that's pretty accurate. I think uh, because he had to toe the line uh, to please the crown, but also reflected the, the temperature of the age, I think that is why he's so evasive, uh, so hard to pin down in terms of his politics, his religion, that sort of thing. And I think that was that was a, one of the things that made him great is because even, even plays like Richard III, which is obviously about the, the regicide, the, the killing of a, a king, you know, and, and as several plays were, um, mm -hmm. he's, it, that's a very touchy subject when it's played in front 
of someone wearing a crown. And yet he did it so artfully, not only that, but tackling the, the religious divide of Elizabethan times and so on, that uh, he was a true artist. And, uh, uh, and it may be an example that informs our age as well in that you know he, he understood that taking one extreme or the other uh, was a way to get his head chopped off. And I wish that more of us could learn how to find that uh, that just middle that he did. Oh, I, I so agree. I, I, I just so agree. I mean, politics, identity, all the different categories of people, intersectionality, it's become toxic. And the thing that I love about Shakespeare is there's this common humanity that's in all his characters. And he didn't he didn't make the, the, the silly distinctions that we try to make today. Uh, one last question. How did this write, how did, how did writing this book change you? Oh, well, it, it you know, it, it made me fall more in love with Shakespeare than I ever had, because actually, because not only the plays, but, you know, when, uh, in, when I do 41 readings from Hamlet, uh, then before launching into quotes from the next play, uh, we, we do some things from the sonnets as well and from some of his epic poems and that sort of thing. So those are sprinkled in amongst them all. But it also just, uh, as it still does today, as I open it and read through it, it drew me closer to God because it's my belief. And as a former pastor, uh, it's understandable, but it's my belief that as you encounter the truths that are in scripture from the very hand of God presented to humankind, uh, and elucidated in Shakespeare, that it's it changes you sometimes in surprising ways, but it will always, as is God's intention for all of us, draw us closer to him. Uh, Bob Hassettler, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for the book, and, and thanks for your wisdom uh, today. And I hope to have you back so we can talk some more. We've, we've covered, as, as you know, uh, just... A, a, just a smidgen of what we can talk about with, with Shakespeare and the Bible. So right. uh, to be continued, I hope. And thanks for joining. Thank you, Bill. Okay. And, and thank you for listening and, and viewing. And uh, we'll be talking again next time. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.